This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today is our Pastor of Education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Um, this is my third week back after a few weeks off uh, because of cancer, um, and, and I still have cancer. It didn't go anywhere, but um, medications are, are working well enough that I can once again participate, and I'm getting a slight hint that my voice is returning. So mm-hmm. I am super excited about that. Uh, we'll see how long that lasts during this episode. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, it's, it's good to be back. Uh, this week's unique uh, development is that I'm actually seated at a table, a kitchen table, with my laptop and my iPad open in front of me. And I'm actually, it looks normal. It's not me laying in super bed with weird, I should say, my bed is, <laughs> my hospital bed is called super bed. Uh, I did give it a name, and before you before you make fun of me, it really is super bad. I mean, it it does like everything. It, it's a you know, I, I'm sure there are hospital beds out there that will do more for you, but I, I don't know what else it could be. You know, <laughs> so uh, it, it's got the massage air. function looks cool. The massage function was cool, although. It did. It did pull an error error code, and the air system shut down when we ran that uh, one night. So I'm trying to get the service people to look at that. Uh, we got it back just by resetting the bed. And it said, you know, what a world we live in. We we have a massage function that pulled error codes and shut down the turbines, and now we've got to get a service <laughs> guy to come out because we did. It came back when we reset the bed, but we're worried this is going to go out again. So we come this week to chapter 2 in our study of the book of Galatians. Last week, Sam, when we looked at it, we kind of laid down some background. Paul was very upset with the uh, the people that were being led astray by a false gospel. It's like, you, mm-hmm. you know, you how is it possible that so soon you would be led into this, you know, into this false gospel? What... Um, what is it that could possibly have, have dragged you away so quickly? And mm-hmm. then we also talked about how it was written fairly early in Paul's ministry, about AD 49 or 50, and just gave mm-hmm. some kind of background stuff. So you kind of understood that uh, Paul was anguished over what was happening in Galatia. You know, he, he was very much determined to scold them. Um, mm-hmm. This week, we're going to be coming more to what actually happened. Uh, it was last week. It was we heard Paul wrote about it, spoke about it in general terms. This week, we're going to get into it in more specific terms. What exactly was going on there in Galatia? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and and by the way, when he's coming at these the, the people that he'll refer to as the Judaizers, like one of the things that makes Paul uniquely capable of taking them on is he was more zealous for the law than anybody that he's coming up against in this chapter. And so, you know, you'll you'll have people back then who are launching accusations at Paul that are trying to either take away his credibility by saying you're no, you're not a genuine apostle, and Paul spends the latter port of, portion of chapter one saying no 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 I got this word directly from God Himself, not from the apostles. I'm an authentic apostle myself, and so he spends the first chapter building his credibility to speak authoritatively as an apostle, as though his words are inspired and Galatians is authoritative. But he's also coming at this, you know, if you were to, to put it in a left-right spectrum, he's coming at these people as somebody who used to be to the right of them, right. more legalistic than them, right. which makes this whole letter just fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's get, in, get right into it. It's uh, Galatians chapter 2, beginning here with verse 1. Paul writes, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. You know, I'm going to stop myself right here and ask a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, 14 years seems like a long time in between actions and things. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that, like, typical? Did everything just take longer back then? Or do you think, was there some reason why it ended up being 14 years? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, somebody that would, because remember, the temple is still in existence at this point. And so by Paul saying that he hadn't gone back to Jerusalem for 14 years, what is, what is he suggesting? That is, that as a Jew that comes out of this really legalistic background, he no longer found it necessary to go to the temple. Right. Well, why not? Because Paul had, Jesus, that fulfilled all of the requirements of the temple. Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest. And so by saying it was 14 years since he goes back to Jerusalem, that's quite a profound theological statement because, you know, as somebody who was steeped in all the religiosity, there were three feasts that Jews, if they could, were supposed to make it to Jerusalem to go to the temple. Well, Jesus has fulfilled all of the law in those respects. He was the temple. He's the sacrifice. He's the priest. And so by not going to Jerusalem, he's sending quite a pretty powerful theological statement as well. But another one of the things that is behind that is when he says it's 14 years since he goes back to Jerusalem, it's another reminder that Paul's Christianity, his faith and and what he's doing to minister at Antioch or Tarsus in between, he's not with the apostles. So his interactions with the apostles are kind of few and far between mm-hmm. at, at the infancy of his faith, which tells you it's kind of an apologetic that – you know what? Christianity wasn't born out of the apostles. You know, God used them in mighty ways to spread it, but there were many other pockets of Christianity that were exploding and spreading before the apostles spread it to the world. And these were eyewitnesses that had come for Passover or come to Pentecost and had gone back home. And so when Paul says, it's been 14 years since, you know, I came back from Arabia and I met with James and Peter and and the apostles, what he's saying is, like, my faith has been growing all this time independent of them. Right. Um, which is kind of fascinating to think about, that there are pockets of Christianity, though the apostles spoke authoritatively in the scriptures, there's pockets of Christianity that are blowing up 
mm-hmm. all over the place. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the uh, men that went back with him, Barnabas was, of course, Paul's assistant and and great co-laborer. He went mm-hmm. with him on missionary journeys. Titus was a Gentile. Right. So it's almost like that was a... I don't want to say it was a, an opportunity. Like, I'm going to bring <laughs> Titus along with me to see what you guys do. Right. I'm, I'm hearing what's going on between this Jew and Gentile thing back in Jerusalem. I'm going to bring Titus along. Yeah. So, so one of the things that the Judaizers were claiming back in the day is that in order to become a Christian, you had to first become a Jew. You know, you had to be grafted into the covenant that God made with Abraham, which was circumcision, and then and only then – could you become a Christian and accept Jesus as your Messiah? Right. And what what Paul is is getting at is no 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 circumcision is not a prerequisite for salvation. That's part of the law that Jesus fulfilled. And so there's this question: Do you have to take on the covenant of circumcision before you can have the Messiah as your Savior? And that's the big debate. And so what he, what is he doing? He says, Hey Titus. You're you're a Gentile. You're uncircumcised. I'm going to bring you, and you're going to be a witness, and I'm going to show them that the Spirit of God is moving mighty in you, that you had a genuine conversion, even though you're not circumcised, and we're going to kind of put them on record as to whether you know they're going to stand by a grace-alone gospel or if there's something you have to do that merits salvation. Right. And and Paul is kind of planting his flag in the grace alone by faith alone salvation. Right. And interestingly Barnabas um I love that that his original name is Joseph we're told and the apostles change his name to Barnabas which means son of encouragement when he sells his property in Cyprus. This guy's for real. Like right. his faith is intense. He takes all of his property, all of his holdings, everything he owns in Cyprus, and he sells it all, and he brings his entire life savings and puts it at the feet of the apostles and says, I'm in. What do you yeah. want me to do? Yeah. And it's actually Barnabas. Like, you know, when we think of the ministry, we think of Barnabas as being Paul's assistant, but it's Barnabas that's sent by the apostles to go to Antioch, and it's Barnabas who says, hey, I know a guy, and it's Barnabas who goes to Tarsus and retrieves Paul from his hometown and says, I'd like you to do this ministry with me. And so out of the gates, Barnabas is kind of in the lead chair, it would seem. And had it not been for Barnabas, God using Barnabas to go recruit Paul, you kind of wonder what would his life have been like. And so Uh God is using this guy to drag... Not drag to invite Paul into ministry. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's kind of fascinating, you know. And let's talk about Paul and circumcision for just a minute, because clearly Paul separates the act of circumcision from the act of redemption. It's like uh, f- whether you're redeemed or saved or not, circumcision doesn't have anything to do with the gospel anymore. Circumcision was mm-hmm. part of the law. It was something that God had commanded of Israel in the Old Testament to set them apart as being his people. And mm-hmm. in the New Testament, we're set apart by having the, you know, having faith in Jesus, by having the Holy Spirit in us. We've got a variety of different ways that set us apart from the, the people of the world around us. Mm-hmm. We didn't need circumcision. And yet, even though a big part of here in chapter 2 is going to involve this circumcision business, Paul wasn't completely against circumcision as some kind of symbol, 
because he's, he circumcised Timothy, mm-hmm. didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what he's saying is, is if you're doing something that is out of a means of celebrating God, and you know, later on he'll talk about festivals and things like that that people celebrate. If you're doing it as a means of worshiping God for what he's done for you mm-hmm. and out of a heart of gratitude, great, have at it, do more of it, that's wonderful. But if you're doing it out of this compulsion – that says you cannot be saved, you can't go to heaven, you can't belong to the Lord unless you do X, Y, Z, then you're out of bounds. It's it's when the legalism comes in and says, no, 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 you have to be circumcised or you're going to hell. You have to be circumcised or God will reject you. Um, And what Paul is, the main idea of Galatians is there's nothing you can do to add to the salvation that Christ alone has purchased for you. Mm-hmm. It comes entirely by grace, not through the law. I think that's why Paul starts this chapter saying, yeah, I haven't been to Jerusalem for 14 years, which if you're thinking, like, what? You don't need the temple? You don't need the... all the Old Testament laws. He's not saying they're bad. Right. What he's saying is Christ has fulfilled all of that law. So the right. New Testament will make a big deal that the Christian has been circumcised in heart, right? right. Rather than the flesh. Right. We're circumcised in spirit through Christ. Like he has fulfilled all of that on our behalf. It's his flesh that was pierced. It's his blood that was spilt. So right. he is he is the basis of our salvation start to finish. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we add. So in verse 2, Paul says, I went up, this is to Jerusalem, because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. So he's saying, I didn't, I didn't walk in the middle of everybody and say, all right, here's this gospel that I'm preaching. I want you all to check this out and comment on it. But he went privately to those who seemed influential. We find out later who some of these men were. And so he set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So, again, sort of an interesting verse because Paul's being a little bit like deferential here. I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. he's, he's coming in and it's like I'm recognizing that the operation here at Jerusalem is important. And mm-hmm. that you guys are influential. And I want you to hear this gospel that I preach, because you never taught it to me. And, you know, I learned this from Jesus. I learned this directly from God uh, by revelation. And so I'm going to come in here and tell you the gospel that I'm preaching so that I can have your endorsement. Is that, mm-hmm. that's basically what is going on here, right? Yeah. And I, and if they'd have come back and said, no, you're wrong, I don't think when he says, that he's making sure that he wasn't running in vain. I think what he means there is had they not given the blessing, I wouldn't want to go out under their auspices anymore. Yeah. You know, like I want to make sure that we're on the same page if we're going to be working in, in the, on the same team. But under no circumstances would Paul have ever compromised the gospel. And he makes that like abundantly clear going forward. Yeah. And another thing that I love here, this is the, mo- and it's, it's instructive for our culture today. I'll just say that. That Paul, for Paul, the gospel is the most precious thing in the world. It's worth him laying his life down. And yet when he goes to Jerusalem where there's all these rumblings of, of legalism and circumcision and he's not 100% sure where everybody stands, 
he doesn't start a Twitter war. You know, he he doesn't call them out on social media and put it all over the papers. <laughs> he gives them an opportunity because he wants to protect their reputation. And so he goes to them privately, those who seem influential, because he wants to protect their influence. Yeah. He's Later, he'll call them out publicly when they're out of bounds for the sake of other people. But here he comes and he says – you know, here's the gospel. This is what's essential. Here's what God has told me, and I don't want to embarrass you publicly, and I don't want to start conflict publicly. I want to talk to you privately, one-on-one, as a group, without any embarrassment, to make sure that we're on the same page. And that's that's super instructive, because you don't see a lot of that anymore. Usually, if we suspect that someone's on the other side these days, the idea of going to them privately so that they're not embarrassed publicly yeah. is the last thing from our minds in our culture. We want to throw it up on Twitter and yep. blast their eyebrows off. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't happen. We're like, you know, how can I Instagram this in the most snarky way possible? <laughs> um, yes. You know, so... Um, so Paul goes up there, and, and I also think that when he talked about this uh, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, I believe that the worst that that the worst thing Paul perceived, like the worst outcome from all of this, would be a church that was divided into a Jewish half and a Gentile half. Mm-hmm. He did not want that at all. He wanted a unified church, Jews and Gentiles together. Um, so that's kind of what I always believed he was making reference to with this in vain idea. It, mm-hmm. He knew his gospel was correct because he got it right from God. Mm-hmm. He just didn't want to see the church divided, uh, which, by the way, is something else that we could take a lesson from today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, you know, you and I do our very best to avoid politics. But there's no question that there is a divide happening within the church that has to do with your politics. Mm-hmm. And he did not want to see a divided church. We should not want to see a divided church. I, I know there's times when when people with you know when groups within the church, you know, maybe an individual church or even half a denomination in some cases, go so far in a, a particular direction that it's just not possible to peaceably coexist with them anymore Mm -hmm. and you hope that they can then peaceably part you know and part ways and and survive all that but as much as it it depends on us we should be focused on the gospel Mm -hmm. seeking unity in the church and not division Mm -hmm. and you'll see paul will split from barnabas yeah between their, their first missionary journey and their second missionary journey they have a disagreement over whether or not John Mark should participate in the second missionary journey. Right. And so they bless each other and go different ways. And both of them magnify the gospel, and the gospel spreads even farther because of it. Right. But the heart behind it was, okay, if we can't come to a mutual agreement on here, we're going to split, but we're not going to tear down the gospel in the process. And a lot of times the kingdom of God, in some sense, the reputation of the church suffers because we don't know how to disagree without absolutely destroying one another. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That is true. So verse 3, we're making good progress. <laughs> verse, <laughs> verse 3, um, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So the litmus test of what you're going to do when I show up with a Gentile convert was passed. They passed that litmus test. They didn't require Titus 
to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then in verse 4, Paul says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this right here is the heart of what's going on in Galatia. You have this group of, and Paul calls them false brothers. So I guess that's going to mean unbelievers. You know, it's like they didn't really believe in this whole Jesus thing. Um, They were Jews, but they didn't, they weren't Jews who recognized Christ as the Messiah. And what they were trying to do essentially was to round up all of these rowdy, newfangled, semi-Jews and say, great, if you want to be part of us, that's fine, but let's start talking about all the things you're going to need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and by doing so, they were dragging these people away from that that gospel of freedom and into slavery to the law. Even they're, and they're starting mm-hmm. small. I'm going to give you just a couple things. Uh, but if that if that went down easily enough, you know there would have been more to follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, there always is. I mean, yeah. there, even now, there are some there's some things that people say. Oh, you can't be a Christian if you this. I mean, fill in the blank. Right. If you vote like this, if you think like this, if you have this belief, you know, then then you cannot possibly be a Christian. And we still to this day add all kinds of things. To the faith alone, grace alone, gospel. Right. Uh, we don't want to call them law, but in a sense, it's saying you have to do this in order to merit your salvation, and it gets really tricky because people love to do that. And so when Paul, I love what he says here because he, you know, these people are coming in, and by the way, they all cons- they would all call themselves Christians. You know, that was a a term that was coined in Antioch while Paul and Barnabas are there. So all of them would have said, "Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Now keep the law if you want to go to heaven." And Paul is going, mm, no. And it said, I love this. We did not yield in submission, even for a moment. Like he will not give up this point that salvation comes through faith alone and grace alone, period. But I love the purpose statement that he gives there when he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And you got to remember who he's writing this letter to. He's writing it to a bunch of Gentiles in Galatia. Right, a whole lot of people that are wondering: Are we going to be accepted, or are they going to force us to totally redefine our our identity and our you know embrace Jewish culture and abandon because because Greek culture doesn't quite fit the gospel and God doesn't really want Greeks, so we have to become Jews and we got to change everything we are to be more Jewish in order to be Christians. And Paul is like, I wouldn't yield a bit. Now this is a this. Remember who Paul is? <laughs> you know, he's yeah. the one who really despised Gentile culture his whole life, and now he's saying you can't force them to be changed into something that's not important to the gospel just for the sake of them being a little bit more like you, Um, because that's not what the gospel is about. Jesus came for the nations. Um, Does he want them to pursue holiness? Absolutely. But out of gratitude, he's purchased their salvation for them with nothing offered by them. And Paul's like, I will not yield even for a moment on that point. Yeah. 
So in verse six, Paul goes into major sarcasm mode. Our our boy Paul, he uh, uh, he he will let you know when you know you're stepping outside of your bounds. And I was like, when when you think of yourself more than you ought, Paul will let you know. <laughs> um, so Paul writes, and from those who seemed to be influential, seemed to be influential, uh, parentheses what they were. Makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Um, he's those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. <laughs> uh, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, now this is beyond influential. These are the guys that the, they're the bedrock of the church. They're the leaders of the church there at Jerusalem, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And I love this last line, by the way, where he tags us in. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So this is a moment of coming together between Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and Peter, uh, James, and John, who were the apostles to the Jews, to the circumcised. Um, and it's almost as though he, I just have this mental picture of Paul, who, who by all accounts was rather short in stature, had sort of a hookish nose, was a, a man not, not great of, of, right, balding, not of great stature. He didn't, he didn't come into a room like Saul did in the Old Testament where everybody's like, that's the king. You know, it's like, <laughs> everybody knows the king just walked in. Um, and yet he walked in and there were these, these guys kind of hanging around who thought they were important. They were acting important. And yet Paul just walked right up in the middle of it and said, excuse me, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, par- coming through, get up, pardon me, pardon me, Peter, James, John, let's talk about this. And they came together. <laughs> And, you know, and the, the apostolic apostles giving him the right hand of fellowship, an endorsement, uh, a sort of, a sort of loving endorsement of Paul's ministry. Um, I just thought, I just imagine that was quite a moment there for the people that were there to see him brushing these other guys aside and going right to the, the apostles who were the pillars of the church. Mm hmm. And I love it, you know, that little dig there when it talks about, you know, yeah, they they seemed important or whatever, but God shows no partiality. Right. Paul, being an expert in the law, is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 10, and Mm -hmm. and in that it says God is is not partial, he doesn't show favorites, he takes no bribe. But the very next lines after that is it, it shows God, it says God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. So love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so what's at issue is how are the the Christian Jews going to treat foreigners? 
And when he says God shows no partiality, that comes in the context of the law given in Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, that says that you are to love the foreigner because you were once foreigners. And so even in the way that he lays this case out, he's, you know, it's like, of course, you're not going to to clamp down on Gentiles and how God loves them. And then he cites a law that says you're commanded to love the foreigner right? because you were foreigners. Yeah. So, hey, hey, you Jews, you know, you were once foreigners in a foreign land and God cared for you. So yeah. you take care of the foreigner. Um, but that's, you know, that's one of the things in churches all over the place. And this is something that I just – I can't handle is when people who who write the biggest checks or who believe that they have the biggest influence try to push down their weight on a subject sure. um, to gain influence. And I honestly, I haven't seen that in our church, which I'm really, really grateful for. But that's that's always driven me crazy when mm-hmm. I've seen that elsewhere, where somebody says, do you, do you know who I am? Well, here's my opinion on it. Therefore, yeah. this is going to be the conclusion, or I'm taking my my basket and going home and Paul's like, nah, you're not really that important. Yeah. You're, you're no more important than anyone else. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Now, if the story ended here, it would be a very straightforward story. You had Paul <laughs> who encountered these, these guys that were trying to lead them back under the law. Paul shoved them out of the way, you know, went straight to the guys that were in charge, got a blessing for his ministry and off he went. And that would be the end of it. But it doesn't end here. What happens next is you begin to see how insidious these guys are. And that's the way it is a lot of times when you have somebody who is working to undermine the gospel and undermine the leadership of the church. They don't come in and do it boldly. Or they may try at first. And when that you know clangs off the rim, then they pull back. They think about it for a while. And they come into it a little softer, a little, you know, let's work in the background. Let's try to get people's ears, this sort of buzzing, but not coming in hot and heavy anymore. And that's what happens here. In verse 11, we read, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then Paul tells us what he was condemned of. That's an odd habit of first century is like it's like first we're going to tell you where they wound up and then we'll tell you what they did um he says for before certain men came from james he was eating peter was eating with the gentiles but when they came he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy um Okay, couple couple of questions. Uh, it says, for before certain men came from James, I don't think James actually sent these guys. They may have said they were from James, but I can't imagine James sending these guys down there going, listen, go down there and straighten them out about this circumcision business. I know what we all just said, but you guys go down there and take care of that. I don't believe for a minute these guys were from, that were actually from James. That's interesting. You know, I think part of it might be that there there's a great fear that what Paul is preaching, that you can't earn your salvation, right? 
is giving way to fears the antinomianism, which is like, well, then we don't have to obey any law. We can just do whatever we want. Right. Might have been taking hold. And I think, you know, that may have been, you know, the party of the circumcision is, hey, 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 whoa, whoa, whoa. We still have some rules around this place. You can't just go wild. And I think maybe that's kind of what it's getting at. Yeah. Um, but regardless, that's definitely the fear. Like, right. what's what's going on here? Like, do you just have no rules? Is it the wild, wild west? How how can you accept salvation by grace alone? Then people are just going to sin and do whatever they want. And how how do you find a, a balance between those two? Right. Whoever these guys were, they were pretty good at this whole work in the background business because <laughs> they led Peter. It, mm-hmm. And I don't want to say they intimidated Peter. I think that they they managed to convince Peter that doing things this way was the best thing for the church. It's like, you don't want to stir everybody up, Peter. You don't want people being confused. These, you know, your Jewish brothers have been, you know, following these rules, these laws, these simple requirements their whole lives. Don't confuse them now. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that kind of cajoling, and it even caught Barnabas up in it. So yeah. they were good at what they were doing. And you got to imagine, if you're Paul, and this is now the central driving passion that God has called you to, and you're seeing your greatest allies in the trenches with you, you know, Barnabas, for Pete's sake, is even, you know, wayward on this. It had to have been really, really difficult. Um and and you know at the same time if I'm if I'm living as a first century Jewish convert to Christianity, I've been raised my whole life that you want you don't even go onto a Gentile's property. You weren't allowed to walk into their house. It was considered scandalous to talk to even talk to them in in a lot of regards. But their their dinners oftentimes the meat was sacrificed to pagan gods. Yep, they would pour out libations to gods. I mean that was part of like every meal. A lot of times there were sexual rights with prostitution, like you see that all over Corinth and then through a lot of the uh, the gods of of Asia Minor. Like that was not unusual. So you're seeing all the time where Gentile culture, because it was seen as patriotic to to honor the gods or to mention the gods or to give libations to the gods that there was a culture where you just you don't do anything with Gentiles because they're going to almost compel you to engage in idolatry. Right. And so you you couldn't eat their meat, you couldn't do all sorts of things. And so that was trained into them from when they were young. I mean, you go back and I mean this isn't a religious example, but I remember when my mom tells a story that when she first moved to Mississippi in the 1960s and one of the the receptionists that worked in her doctor's office was black and you know, she began because she was older, my mom was saying, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, to her. And it was scandalous mm. among the white people of Mississippi to give someone that kind of a, a a name of honor. They had separate waiting rooms, and if they ever mixed, it was like, oh, my goodness, that's, you're like you violated some cultural norm because that's just the way things were done back then. Yeah. As bad as it was, but to untrain those bad habits and now now add a religious component to it, it makes it even heightened. You know that well, they they sacrificed to pagan gods. We're not allowed to engage in any part of their culture because it's idolatry and it's bad. 
And so now all of a sudden you're merging and they're getting to do life together and tell stories and all kinds of different cultural norms are weaving in. And these people come up from Jerusalem where it's overwhelmingly Jewish culture and they're coming to see Wait a minute! You guys are eating with each other, and all of a sudden, Peter's like, uh, "No, no, no! I, I, I was just getting—I was just getting a fork." You yeah, know? <laughs> and and they're bailing on each other, and everybody goes back to their norms because they don't want to be seen as ungodly or unrighteous or whatever. Right, right. And Paul's like, "Are you kidding me? Like, you're preaching a false gospel if you're saying that they're not worthy to be among the people of God." Because of their race, because of the way they eat, because of their cultural norms, then you've abandoned the idea that salvation and entrance into God's family comes because of Jesus. You're claiming that it's something that they're doing or you're doing, and that is abandoning the Christian faith. Sure. And so he says to Peter, you stand condemned. You know, remember how he talked about angels. If an angel comes and preaches to you a false gospel, let him be accursed. Paul's looking at Peter (laughs) and saying essentially the same thing. Like, you are preaching a false gospel, my brother. You're in in dangerous territory. You stand condemned right now. Well, Um, and and let's let's look at uh, verse 14 here because – Paul writes, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So you're kind of like, well, I don't get that. Cephas, you know, Peter was, the whole problem was that he was living like a Jew when he was around the Jews. And he was living like a Gentile when he was around the Gentiles. I would say the answer to that is that the Gentile dietary laws were basically wide open. Eat whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish dietary laws, not so much, you know, and that Peter was Mm -hmm. probably enjoying eating the Gentiles' food and, and following their habits as far as meals went because he was having an opportunity to eat anything he wanted. So he was mm-hmm. taking advantage of that to nail down a nice ham and cheese sandwich or something like that. He was, you know, he was, this was his opportunity. Bacon. He got introduced to bacon. bacon. That's what happened. That's exactly it. I mean, how can you possibly walk away from bacon? Um, so he, you know, so I think that that's what was going on here was that Peter was enjoying the freedom that he found uh, mm-hmm. by living as a Gentile, and yet he was trying to convince these Jewish guys when they would come into town that, oh, no, 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 I'm keeping, I'm keeping all the same laws that you are. Mm-hmm. And it was, the, it was the hypocrisy of it that I think offended Paul so much. It was something that was not in step with the gospel. It was major hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And I love when Paul calls him out, notice he doesn't say, he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he doesn't say, hey, you're violating the law, though though racism and all that stuff would certainly be violating the law. He says, you're not abiding in the truth of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? So if, if you take this, Paul, what Peter is doing is he's saying, okay, when the when the rule keepers are around – I'm going to pretend like I'm still a I'm a rule keeper that I'm I'm fighting for God's favor based on the rules but when they leave I'm going to live w- with the freedom. Sure. And 
you know the the there's a great quote that I heard uh, someone preach, and uh, it was from Tertullian, and he said this, and you got to use your imagination a little here. He says, "Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors." And what he's talking about is legalism on one side and antinomianism, where you where you think, "Oh, the law doesn't matter anymore. We have Jesus. We can do whatever we want." And he says, you know, Jesus was crucified between two thieves, and the gospel is always being harmed between these two thieves as well. Because antinomianism, when you say the law doesn't matter, that steals from what the gospel can do in your life. And if you go to the far ends of legalism, that too will steal from the power of the gospel in your life. And people are always falling on one side or the other, where the legalist will say, oh, well, I, I don't, I don't want to buy into the idea that God could save someone like Hitler. Surely he's too bad. So you got to do something to earn your salvation. Right. You know, you could, you could certainly be too bad because – and what you're basically saying when you say, you know, there's, there's a limit to how much God is merciful. What you're saying is, well, you meet that limit and you're good enough for God's mercy. And no, you're not. <laughs> you don't deserve you don't deserve Jesus to die on a cross for you ever. Right. Like and the fact that Jesus had to die on a cross for you shows you just how desperately bad you're off. Right. You know, it required the death of God to redeem you. You're so legalism has no foothold. It has nothing to stand on. But on the other side, when Jesus died for you, he didn't just you know, die so that you could go on living forever in a sinful, messed up way and reveling in all kinds of debauchery. He died for you to make you holy. He died for you so that the Spirit could come and, and dwell in your heart and give you the indwelling power to bear the fruit of the Spirit, things like love and joy and peace and patience and, and the gospel enables you from gratitude, not obligation, it's freedom, not slavery, to love God by doing what he desires for your life. So the gospel, you, you can't ever be good enough. And for the legalist, it blows me away. So for the people who say, ah, you're not good enough for God, do you really think you can be good enough? Like people who are offended at the gospel and they say, that's ah, too easy. You got to do something. It, you know, murderer can't get in. Like, what you're saying is you think that there's a standard you could meet to be worthy of God? Like, how shallow and small your God is. Yeah. There's no way I could ever be worthy of my God. He's far too great, far too holy, far too righteous. I could – I'll never be good enough. Right. And yet his love for me makes me worthy, makes me righteous. He forgives me and cleanses me, and it makes me overwhelmed that he would do that for me. And on the flip side, because he loves me that wildly, man, I want to please him. I want to see him smile. Well, how do I do that? Well, he gives me the law and says the moral law is a picture of who God is, and it's how we can please him. And so the gospel doesn't come and say, ah, the law doesn't matter anymore. Far from it. Yeah. Far from it. It's just you can't – you're not earning the favor of God by keeping the law anymore. It's no longer a slavery. You're his. Right. You're his. And now if you want to please him, here's the law. Yeah. Well, if there's any uh, consolation or encouragement to you, Paul agrees with you. Um, <laughs> we pick up in verse 15 where Paul says – we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know 
that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Um, It's like we're coming out here and saying that, and again, he's not saying that the, he's not doing the antinomian thing. He's not saying the law has no purpose. You're free to ignore the law and do whatever you want. The law are still God's commands for us, mm-hmm. and we would do well to live by them. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that if we don't live by them, that we're that we're going to hell? Well, nope. That's not what this says. This says we're saved by faith. So. What then is the purpose of the law? It is to the purpose of the law is to show us our our constant and and ever growing need uh, for a savior, just like it was before we were saved. So it is afterwards. The law shows us the things God would have us do, mm-hmm. um, but but the penalty of it is removed. Yeah, and one of the things that that Tom talks about is. And I love this. He's like, you know, you owe every second of every minute of every hour of every day that you will ever live to God. Yeah. And so if you fail for one second, if you fail for one minute, you can never pay that back. Right. Like, because you can't borrow from tomorrow because God already deserves tomorrow. And so once you fall, there's no way to make yourself right again. And you're, you're offending an infinitely holy God that you owe everything to. And so there's no way to get clean again. You can never take the shame away. You can never take the guilt away. And even in the Old Testament, you know, the Jews, when they would, ha- they would come to sacrifice, they were constantly having to offer atoning sacrifices. Why? Because they knew that there was no way that they could live a life that was worthy of God. They were always having to offer sacrifices. And, and by the way, the New Testament comes along and says that all of those sacrifices were merely pointing your heart to Jesus. Right. In Hebrews, we're told it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. And so when Jesus comes, he, he literally becomes the fulfillment of all the law. It's like, you know, you, you get all of these laws of the Old Testament, all the laws of Moses that are hundreds of them, and they're all laid out on you, and no one could bear the weight of them. No imperfect person, no fallen person could possibly measure up and keep them all. Jesus comes, and all of the, the, the ceremonial law and the Levitical law, the dietary law, all of that stuff, he fulfills. And what was the purpose of those things? So, like, if you think of the ceremonial law, going to the temple and offering sacrifices and what you were wearing and how you had to cleanse yourself and all that stuff, why did you do that? You did that to take away the filth that was on you so that you could have access to God in that moment. Right. What is, what is the purpose of what Jesus did? He went to the cross to take all of your filth away to make you absolutely 100% acceptable in the sight of God, wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And so all of that ceremonial law is done. It's unnecessary because Jesus has fulfilled it for you. Mm-hmm. All the moral law, all your shame, Jesus has taken all of it from you. And he's borne it on the cross. He has paid the debt. He's given you his righteousness. And so none of that is necessary for salvation because 
he has accomplished it. Sure. He has accomplished it. Sure. You know, there's and and first John, I which I did a devotion for our staff on this. But and and first John that the line where it says that he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Sure. Like that's a very bizarre statement because when you think, you know, this is the apostle John writing this, he says he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, but just is a weird word there. Like you would expect him to say he is he is faithful and forgiving, or he's faithful and merciful, he's faithful and gracious to forgive our sins, right? But he says just. What does that mean? It means that when you repent of your sins and you go before God, it's not even so much it, he's a merciful God, absolutely, by making the gospel True, he's a merciful God. He's gracious beyond limits. But when you go and you repent of your sins before God, it says he is just to forgive you your sins. Why? Because all those sins have already been paid for. Mm -hmm. Justice is fulfilled by pardoning you because Jesus was already declared guilty, and it would be unjust of God to punish you for the sins that Jesus has already paid for. And so there's a forensic justice that happens on the cross where Jesus has taken all of that stuff, and he's paid them. And so it's not just his grace and mercy that makes it possible, but when you appeal for forgiveness from God, it's justice to wipe clean your slate because Jesus has already paid for all your faults. Yeah. It's it's and that's how we're justified, but through the law, good luck. You'll be you'll be striving forever, unable to ever make it up. Yeah. Only in Christ can you be justified in the eyes of God. Well, Paul brings us to the big finish here, beginning in verse 17. He says, "But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Uh, which was really what you were just saying, which is what, per what reason did Christ have to die if not to set us free from the law? Um, mm -hmm. I, there's a couple things here in this last you know, passage that are curious. One of them is Paul is talking about if he rebuilds what he, t what he tore down, he proves himself to be a transgressor. I wasn't sure what he was getting at there. What do you think he's getting at? The way that I took it is, is based on what he follows it up with. So when he says, I, I'm, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Like, I think what he is saying in this point is what he then follows it up with. What he's saying is, I died. My attempts to prove myself to be good enough, impossible. I, I, I'll never be. I'm a sinner. I, I will never measure up to God. So I literally am going to crucify myself, mm -hmm. all of my flesh, my desires, everything that I've striven to be my whole life as a good rule-following Jew. 
I'm crucifying it. I'm tearing it all down, right? Mm. But if if now I try to rebuild it and say, no, 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 you know what? I, you know, I'm going to go back and I'm going to rebuild this life where I'm striving to to please God. Like he only proves himself to be a transgressor. He doesn't gain anything. He's wow. not righteous in it. And and having torn it down, he's he, he's accrued a debt now uh-huh. that would be damning upon him. You know, while you were saying that, this thought occurred to me. It's almost as if Paul, well, I could see Paul saying, why would I want to rebuild the, the rule of the law and go live <laughs> under the law again? Because all I would be doing then is making it clear I'm a sinner. He's like, mm-hmm. what reason, what possible reason could I have in going back and living once again under the law? The mm-hmm. answer, of course, is none, but that's what's going on. You know, He's saying I wouldn't do it. Because it would be only to my detriment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, the law in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, the law had certain purposes. You know, the, you've heard it said, you know, that the law is a tutor and, and right. how, how to live, you know, how to become more like Christ. But the law is also a curse to those who are trying to keep the whole thing. Right. And the law is beautiful and the law is good. The problem is we're not. Yeah. We can't keep it. <laughs> you yeah. know, like if you take the, the 500 and some odd commands that are laid down by Moses and you said, how are you doing? And you laid them out in front of you. Or if you just took Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and you said, okay, how are you doing with this? Yeah. It would bury us. Like the law condemns us because we are not up to God's perfect standard. We're selfish. We have a fallen nature. We we get angry. We do impulsive things. We're we're stupid and we lack self-control a lot of times. And so what Paul is saying is like Jesus freed me from all that. You know, I no longer have to go and stand before God terrified that I'm not good enough. I now get to go to God who has looked at me and said, I see you for all your flaws and all your mistakes. I know who you are, and you're not good enough, but I am. And so I will send my son, and I'll clothe you in my righteousness and your mind. So all the ways that you used to go through life and your relationship with me, and it was all based on slavery. It was all based on anxiety and fear and duty. And it was, you know, there was no authentic relationship or love. It was just a master and a servant and nothing more than that. Jesus comes along and tears all of that down. He gives you the freedom to be, by the way. Imperfect, and to admit that you're imperfect. In fact, John will say, if if you say that you don't sin, you call God a liar. You know, he he allows you to be honest for once, and to let go of the mask, and to say, I I, I can't ever measure up, but you love me beyond my wildest imaginations anyway, and I'm secure with you. Why in the world would I ever want to rebuild that? Yeah. You know, the the law relationship. I'm free from it. You know the. Uh the clock on the wall says we only have a few minutes left, so can you explain this whole I've been crucified with Christ thing in just a couple minutes? Probably not. <laughs> no, probably not, no. Um, no but, that's, a but pretty, that's a pretty major thing that Paul's laying oh down Oh, man. It is so wonderful to understand what's going on here. When he says... I have been crucified with Christ. If you read Ephesians, if you read Colossians, or here in Galatians, all through the writings of Paul, one of the things that we get the amazing privilege of 
is everything that Jesus accomplished in his passion narrative, his resurrection and ascension, we get to share with him. So when he goes to the cross, all of our sin goes with him, and it's crucified. All the deeds of the flesh are crucified with him. And when he's raised up from the dead, guess what? You're raised with him. When he ascends into heaven, now we're told we ascended with him. When he reigns at the right hand of God the Father, what does it say? That he has seated us in heavenly places, and now in the kingdom of God, we co-reign with him as his church. And so everything that Jesus accomplished single-handedly, all by his merit, we get to share in. And so now I come before Jesus and I come with all these anxieties and all this, the, the fears and, and the anger and everything else, and it's like, no, no, no. All of my flesh has been crucified with Christ. It's, it's been done. It's no longer my desires that live, but now the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in me, and so now I want to surrender. I want to submit so that the power of the Spirit, the power of Christ now lives in me. And the life I'm living in this body, man, I'm living in faith. I'm constantly remembering who it is, who he is, what he's done for me. I'm living by his power. I'm constantly remembering that it's not about me being good enough and striving and toiling and being anxious. Oh my gosh, does God love me? Am I good enough? What do people think? No, no, no. I live it entirely by faith in the Son of God. I am free from guilt. I'm free from shame. I'm free from fear. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. So I am not going to nullify the grace of God, what he's purchased for me. Think of that acronym for grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. I'm not going to nullify what he bought for me because if righteousness comes through my efforts to follow the law, then Christ died for nothing. Right. And that's that is an amazing thought. Like, I remember getting into it with, with students and discussions in class when I was teaching high school, and they would be like, you know, I, I think there's other ways I think you can be. And it's really like, if you could get to heaven without Jesus, then why would God the Father put his son on a cross if there was another way? I think about what that says of God the Father. Like, if Paul could get to heaven if Paul could please God apart from Jesus, why would God the Father allow Jesus to go through such a horrendous suffering upon the cross? There was no other way. And so I'm not going to set aside this amazing gift that Jesus has given to me. Because if righteousness, being right with God, were possible through some other way, then really Jesus died for nothing. Yeah. And what does that say about the character of God? He died for you. Right. He died to give you a gift that you could never purchase or earn on your own. So you want to please God, take it, and live in the freedom that he delights to give his people. Mm -hmm. The idea of crucifixion, that's how I mean, Christ gave his life. It's, it's how his life ended, and it's how our old life ends as well. It's like... Mm -hmm. When he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, he has no other life. We, you and I, have no other life. This is the mm -hmm. only life we have, which is the life we're given in the wake of the crucifixion. It's like our old life died. Our life under the law, our life as, uh, as sinners, you know, 
does that mean we don't sin? Of course not. Of course we still sin. But mm-hmm. it's different because we're no longer regarded by God as a sinner because we've accepted salvation by faith. And mm-hmm. that all takes place with this with at the crucifixion. That being crucified with Christ means that I died also. All that old baggage, mm-hmm. all that stuff that I'm carrying with me, all those things that are that have been ruinous to my life for all these years, they mm-hmm. end at the cross as well. Um, and that's what Jesus means when he tells us that those who would follow after him must take up their cross every day. Yeah. You're not literally going to be crucified every day, but in a spiritual sense, every day you have to take up your cross and say, I'm willing to let my life go yeah. so that God can live through me. And that's when Paul, one of my favorite ways that he says this comes in the book of Romans, you'll be thrilled to hear, yes. where he says that we are to be a living sacrifice. Yeah. That means that every day we put ourselves on the altar before God and we say, you know what? This life, it's yours. What do you want from it? I live now to be pleasing to you and to accomplish your purposes. So I, my desires are going to die, but I'm a living sacrifice for you. What would you have me do? Yeah, You know, that's, that's the start of Romans chapter 12. And Paul brands it there as your reasonable act of worship. Reasonable <laughs> act of worship. True. And it is. Uh, you know, yeah. but that's very true. You know, yeah, God is not asking you to do anywhere near what He has done for you. Yeah, yeah. So now we've seen what it is that the Galatians had got themselves caught up in. They, you know, they had these Judaizers that were subtly convincing the the Jews to continue to live under Old Testament laws and regulations to make the Gentiles question themselves, obviously, uh, to make them feel like they too, perhaps, should be living under these terms of the Old Testament laws. Um, in, you know, in the next chapter of Galatians, he's going to get into it a little bit more doctrinally. I mean, he, there was a lot of doctrine here, but there was also a lot of, and then they did this, and then I said that, and then they did this, and then he did that. And so there's a lot of, of testimony given regarding the actions of people. And now in true Pauline fashion, he's going to give us a couple of chapters where he lays down the doctrine for us, and then he's going to close out, again, Paul's way of doing things by telling us how then should we live. Mm-hmm. So next week we'll get into more of the, you know, is it by faith? Is it by works of the law? And there's, you know, he's got a lot to say uh, doctrinally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do like Good stuff. I do like that about Paul. So we hope that you've enjoyed yourself with us today. That it's been a profitable time for you. Uh, as always, once again, if you'd like to correspond with us to ask a question, make a comment, uh, perhaps tell us where we were wrong. <laughs> I'm sure somebody out there has got to disagree with us about something. Uh, you can send us email at outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-VistaChurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. 
You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, and a whole bunch of new places (laughs) as we're with our new host now. Uh, who is spreading us around uh, a bit more. Sam and I will return next week with more from the book of Galatians, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.